Good evening, everybody. Welcome to class six in our discussion of the Book of Lost Tales. Uh, we are starting to move towards the end of the book. Um, uh, tonight, we're going to uh, move on and talk about the uh, sun and the moon. I still have a, a, some loose ends that I want to uh, clean up from previous classes. I have found this for some reason, I'm not even entirely sure why, actually. I have found this book harder to stick to the schedule than, uh, than I did with other, uh, with other books, than I did, for instance, with Unfinished Tales. I don't feel like I have that much more to say about the Book of Lost Tales. Maybe my schedule was just a little too aggressive. I don't know, but, um, but it's been challenging to, uh, to, to, to try to keep up with schedule. Before I uh, get uh, too far in, though, I need to make an important announcement. Because those of you who are uh, getting the recordings of these classes through the MythGuard podcast feed, um, through the RSS feed, either directly through the link to the RSS feed that we put on our website or through iTunes, um, we've made a change uh, to the way that um, to the way that, to the way that you you will be receiving those. Um, previously, as, as you'll know, if you've been uh, getting them this way. Um, we've been posting both the video and the audio recordings of each class to that same podcast feed. Um, we've stopped doing that. We're, um, both are still available um, just as easily, um, but we're not putting them on the same feed. We're making, we've separated them into a, a separate audio feed and a video feed. So the feed that you, if you've subscribed to our, to our RSS feed, that feed is now the audio feed. So if you want the videos, you need to go and subscribe to the other, to the video feeds. Sorry for the inconvenience there. Um, we're, we've made that change uh, basically just in order to avoid um, unnecessary extra downloads. Um, as you know, we have made these classes and the recordings publicly available to everybody, but it's not totally free to us, of course. We're paying for the downloads of these. We don't care how many people download them. We want as many people to watch them as possible. But we do, since we are paying for it, we do want to minimize the number of people who download a, an episode that they don't actually need. So, for instance, somebody who really just wanted the audio and had subscribed to the podcast feed was getting all of the video files downloaded, you know, to their device automatically um, through the through the podcast feed, um, and then presumably just deleting it if they didn't want to use that. Um, and similarly, people were just getting the video, would get the audio, and then would not need that. I, it seemed, based on talking to people, it seems that very few people actually use both. There are many people who use each, but very few individuals who actually consume both files. Um, so we just figured we'll, we'll make it easier on you guys to just subscribe to the feed that you really want, if you use the video, if you use the audio. Um, and in all the other cases, through iTunes U, through, uh, uh, through our web page, you can get them all the same way. So I hope that this will actually be, uh, you know, once a small adjustment is made here at the beginning, an increased convenience for you guys, uh, and it will also uh, cut down on our uh, on our operating costs. So anyway, that's um, that's just a, I wanted to make sure to uh, to make that clear, uh, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll. But I said everything else should sort of move forward uh, from here. So okay. Any questions about that? Any questions about the available? I hope everyone who's been looking for the recordings has been able to get them, to get access to them. Um, okay. Also, I should say, since we are 
you know, entering the, uh, the, the, the home stretch of the Book of Lost Tales Part 1 uh, to remind you, uh, in case you've forgotten, that we've already elected the next class that we're going to be doing, and that is Dune by Frank Herbert. So uh, if, uh, you know, once you finish the Book of Lost Tales, you're looking for something to, uh, to move on to, you can get a, you can get a start uh, reading Frank Herbert's Dune, which I'm really excited to talk about. Uh, anyway, okay. Now, back to the Book of Lost Tales. I have an extremely, uh, extremely ambitious um, <laughs> class plan for tonight. So we'll see how much of it we get through. Um, I want to begin where with the thing I failed to get to at the end of class last time, and that is I thought there were some very interesting things uh, in the previous two chapters uh, that sort of suggest Tolkien's thinking back in the early days here about the nature of evil. This is something that I've talked about a great deal um, in looking at the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, and having thought about that a lot uh, in Tolkien's later writing, um, we, uh, uh, I, I find it fascinating to compare um, to what we see earlier on. I talked about this a little bit when we were looking at the music of the Ainur, and in particular the speech, the much longer speech, that Iluvatar gives to Melko at the end of the the, the uh, discord um, at the end of the music, um, and I want to look at a, at a at a couple things here. Um, look at um, look at this passage here. Yeah, just a second here. Sorry, I forgot to do one quick thing. Okay, good. Um, okay, in sooth, it is a matter for great wonder. The subtle cunning of Melko, for in those wild words who shall say that there lurked not a sting of the minutest truth, nor failed to marvel seeing the very words from of Melko pouring from Feanor his foe, who knew not, nor remembered whence was the fountain of these thoughts, yet perchance the outmost origin of these sad things was before Melko himself, and such things must be, and the mystery of the jealousy of elves and men is an unsolved riddle one of the sorrows at the world's dim roots. This, of course, this passage comes right after Feanor's speech when the Noldoli decide to leave, um, you know, right and right before the kinslaying. Um, and this is one of the passages in the, you know, uh, in, in the whole, um, you know, set of chapters we read for last class. This was the passage I found most startling. Um, it's one thing to say as it says at the beginning, which of course he's still saying in the published Silmarillion, um, Feanor in his great speech has forgotten the fact that most of the accusations that he is hurling in his bitterness at the Valar um, are, 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 have come from, from, from Melkor, that although Melkor, you know, he is, he is declaring Melkor to be his enemy and he is going to oppose Melkor and all that he does, yet he himself is following in Melkor's footsteps and even recycling the the same lies that Melkor sowed. We see that happening here. We see that continuing to happen in the Silmarillion. That's consistent. Again, pointing to that irony is um, not really strange. In fact, if anything, that seems to make perfect sense, right? In fact, that seems to be in its way a kind of recapitulation of what we saw uh, of what we saw in the music itself, right? That seemed to be implicit in the entire pattern of Melko's de uh, rebellion during the course of the music, right? Not only that he, um, 
tried to, to elevate the part to himself, not only that he drew unto himself, that others began to accord themselves to his music rather than to the original theme, but the way in which Melkor's music is described as this, this unison, right, this blaring unison. Um, those who fall, those who, 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 who give in to pride, uh, and you know, go ultimately in evil and sinful directions. At the end of the day, evil's kind of a one-trick pony, and they all look alike, and they all sound like it's not an accident, right? Of course, in this case, it's obviously not an accident because those seeds have been planted by Melko. But again, when he falls, the fact that in his fall he looks like Melko when he fell is also not surprising, not an accident, just what we would have expected from the pattern of the music. Um, uh, and and again, very very much the way that Melko's own music was operating within the music in the beginning. That's not the startling bit. It's cool, but it's not startling. The startling bit uh, is the last part. Who knew nor yet remembered whence was the or so Feanor didn't know or remember whence whence was the fountain of these thoughts. And then it's as if that concept of the fountain of these thoughts sparks the question: What is indeed the fountain? Can Melko even? be said to be the fountain of these thoughts. What is the wellspring of evil? Where does evil come from? What is the root of all pride and discontent? Yet perchance the, and this is of course one of those words that Christopher Tolkien is, is uncertain of in his interpretation, um, uh, outmost, uttermost, I don't know, um, origin of these sad things was before Melko himself and such things must be. And the mystery of the jealousy of elves and men is an unsolved riddle, one of the sorrows at the world's dim roots. Right, Andrew says, I suppose it all ultimately comes from Luvatar. Um, yes, yes. Um, but that depends on what you, do, what you mean by it, right? Um, that is to say, yes, they all, as Kate Neville is just saying, the Valar all spring from the mind of Eru. Yes, they do. Melkor did also. Melko, excuse me, did also. But um, uh, but this is um, again the question is everything everything comes from God. Um, I mentioned a while back. Um, the old Augustinian doctrine about the nature of evil, uh, which has been very dominant in Western Christian thinking. And the, that basic argument is very simple, and it is that evil does not exist. Not that there's no such thing as evil and that everything is good, but rather that evil has no positive existence. It isn't a thing. It is just a perversion of things. Um, that what God has, and God has created things, and everything that he created is good. But those good things that God created were also left free, and the freedom of their wills can be used in order to do bad things. Now, all bad things, all evil actions, are merely the application of a good thing to something bad. Uh, you know, if, uh, if a strong person kills a weak person, the strength of the strong person isn't evil. Um, it is a good that is given to that person. The choice of how to apply that strength, which is a good gift from God, is in the hands of the of the person, and the choice of that person's will was evil. But the strength wasn't evil, 
the person in his being isn't evil, right? He was not created evil. Again, this is the Augustinian argument that 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 evil is only a perversion. It is it, it is a twisting of a good thing. Um, and I said when we talked about the music of the Ainur that from the sound of this version now, not the published Silmarillion version, but from the sound of the of the Book of Lost Tales version uh, of the music of the Ainur, it sounded, it did not, I would not, I would never have read, if, if the Book of Lost Tales version were all that I had, I would not have concluded, as I have done, and, and have said this at many other points uh, in my podcasting history, um, that Tolkien's concept of evil seems to be fundamentally an Augustinian one. I think that he does. You know, that, that you could think of, of course, the sort of the famous lines where this is talked about, you know, for nothing was evil in the beginning, even Sauron was not so. That classic Augustinian doctrine right there. Um, um, that that everything that that every being that we call an evil being is a good being that has fallen. Um, and also, potentially could be redeemed, though that seems not to be the case, at least according to traditional theology uh, of the fallen angels. But anyway, um, certainly so with humans. Now, like I said, I don't, in the music of the Ainur, see that very clearly. And this right here suggests not. Um, also, this seems to be a flatly non-Augustinian version of or concept of evil, um, and, the, and where it seems to put evil um, is in the place uh, is, that is in the hands of fate. Such things must be. It says that is that evil is a is an intrinsic part of the plan of Luvatar from the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Arthur says, why is Eru smiling at the beginning of the second theme? Um, yeah, exactly, Arthur. That, that it's, that the implication, you know, it seemed to be things haven't gone not according to plan, that that was as he knew it would be, um, that that was, in a sense, part of the plan already. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sarah says, maybe the very fact of free will makes it almost inevitable that it will be turned to evil purpose. Not inevitable, um, but possible. And it must be really possible. If the, if the will is really free, it must be possible. But Sarah, for that same reason, if the will is really free, it must also be possible for them not to do it. You know, there are some people who talk this way, some theologians who talk this way about Adam and Eve, right? Who sort of spoke of the fall as if it were really inevitable. I mean, like, sooner or later it was going to happen. Right. I mean, like they, they, maybe they could have held out longer. Um, maybe who knows? Maybe even Adam and Eve could have could have got. But you know, somebody would eventually. I mean, it was it was pretty much bound to happen. Um, and but that's that's a that's a concept that was rejected because you know people say, look, um, this is if it's free will, then they have to be free. Uh, I, I, you know, I, it's hard not to think of Milton's words: sufficient to have stood, but free to fall. Um, that's uh, I don't agree with Milton on a lot of things, but uh, when he says a thing, boy, he says it memorably. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, that 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 both of those concepts, both the concept of actually maintaining goodness consistently, 
and falling to evil. Both of those things have to be, if, if the will is really free, both of those things have to be live possibilities. Um, yes, Philip uh, Menzies is pointing immediately to Paralandra by C.S. Lewis. Uh, Philip, that's exactly sort of the thought experiment that Lewis is doing there, right? Um, uh, he had already said in one of his earlier books that if there were intelligent life on another planet, he sees no reason to necessarily believe that they have fallen, right? And so in Paralandra, he gives, he gives a story which envisions what would happen in a world where the temptation was resisted, when in fact the people did not fall, and what would that look like and how would that occur. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly sort of the project there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, um, but back to this passage here. I want to... I wanna, I wanna, I wanna, steer back to the Book of Lost Tales and, 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 and try to stay here now if I can. Yet perchance the origin of these sad things was before Melko himself, and such things must be. So maybe that these sad events, these tragedies, these evils, were fated to have been, were coded in from the beginning. But how would that be? How is it that things which seem so evil could be part of the Luvatar's design? But notice where the rest of it goes. And the mystery of the jealousy of elves and men is an unsolved riddle, one of the sorrows at the world's dim roots. Answer? We don't know. Nobody knows. Even the Valar don't seem to know the answer to that question. Um, this is one of the things that I think is, and this is what I'm going to spend a lot more time tonight talking about, um, is the position of the, Val the Valar, sort of the status of the Valar, as it were. Um, they don't know. They don't seem to know. Um, their distance from Iluvatar seems to me very much greater in the Book of Lost Tales than at least we're led to understand uh, in, uh, in the published Silmarillion and in the Lord of the Rings. Um, not that we've learned very much, very explicitly about the Valar in the Lord of the Rings, but still even there. Um, the hints that we get certainly don't seem to point in this sort of particular directions. Andrew says no one knows. Is that a bit of a cop-out? No, Andrew, I certainly don't believe it's a cop-out. Um, that is to say, if one accepts the idea of God, of an infinite God, if you accept the idea of infinity, it is not a cop-out to say that infinity is really very much greater than finitude, and that no finitude, howsoever great, uh, you know, what is the, you know, if you take infinity minus one, and you take infinity minus 100 million, the answer is still infinity, right? Infinity is equally distant from both 100 million and from one. So it doesn't matter how large your finite brain is. If your brain is finite, it is still infinitely far removed from that which is infinite. So again, intrinsic in the idea, fundamental to the idea of an infinite all-knowing God is the idea that his knowledge is indeed infinitely removed from ours, and therefore there must, by definition, by logical mandate, there must be a point at which finite minds cannot comprehend the mind of God and the understanding of God. That must be true. If it's not true, then God is not infinite. Um, so, so again, this, this, uh, that seems to me like a, like a, like a logical necessity, not in any way uh, uh, as 
as a cop out indeed to say to say otherwise is merely to say there cannot possibly be an infinite god, which one is free to say, uh, but one is not free to say I believe in an infinite god, but I don't think he can possibly do things that we can't comprehend, or rather that it's just weenie to say that an infinite god can comprehend things that we can't. Um, but again, that's the point here is that if we have that divide between the mysterious, by definition, mysterious, that is unknowable by us, mysterious in the old sense. We've seen all the way through, haven't we, um, how Tolkien has been very persistently using very old words and using words in very old senses in the Book of Lost Tales, right? His vocabulary um, and his usages have been very deliberately archaic uh, throughout the Book of Lost Tales. And I believe that when he says the mystery of the jealousy of elves and men, he is using the word mystery uh, in, its, in its old sense, in a sense similar to the way that it's used in the King James translation of the Bible. Um, you know, when somebody says mystery, or when, when, uh, when the Apostle Paul in, the, in his epistle says, I speak of a mystery, um, he doesn't mean mystery in the sense of like a modern mystery novel, right? It's, it's not a, like a puzzle that we haven't yet figured out. A mystery is... It's a mystery. I'm speaking of something which is supernaturally revealed. That's what Paul means when he says it's a mystery, right? A thing which can't really be figured out by us, something which is just kind of revealed um, and which we have to accept because we couldn't have gotten there step by step on our own. Um, and, uh, uh, and so he, this passage is therefore in suggesting that the sadness and evil and tragedy is in fact a mystery it's not just saying we haven't figured it out yet, but rather um, it, it's this is this is part of the secret mind of God, which isn't knowable by us. Maybe someday we'll understand it if we're joined with Him, but we don't know it now and can't know it now. But to me, the fascinating thing about this—two fascinating things about this—one is that evil again seems to be on the other side of that. Evil is being attributed directly to God here, directly to Iluvatar in a way which it is not in the later writings. And that's really interesting. But what seems to be tied up with that at the same time is that dividing wall of what, where, what is a mystery, what is an unsolved riddle, right? Um, what, is, what makes the world's roots dim? That things are mysterious and unsolved and dim to humans goes without saying. That things remain unsolved and mysterious and dim even to elves is understandable. But they seem to be true even of the Valar. The entire perspective of these stories, which has been following the Valar around the whole, uh, the whole way through, doesn't, this, doesn't understand that, right? Um, I return again, because again, this is the thing that I, that I want to be focusing on most tonight. I return again to something that we've talked about before, which is the narrative mode of these stories. What kind of stories we're reading. Where the point of view of these stories lies, right? And the point of view of these stories, the protagonists of these stories, have been emphatically the Valar. And that is fundamentally different. That goes way beyond the sort of fun, the different narrative approach of the published Silmarillion. We talked about that, that sort of epitomizing mode, that like, I'm going to tell legends from a distance, you know, the way in, you know, I mean, I remember in the Silmarillion seminar talking about this, the way in which the narrative, you know, is kind of, you know, flying at 20,000 feet and looking all around at the big picture of the story. But even there, it's never, you know, 
very rarely are the Valar even the primary characters in the story. It's it's it tells the story about how the elves get there in order to set it up, right? But it's it's at, at no point really is this a Valar story. Those are the those are the setups for the elf story. The elves are really the level at which the Silmarillion story is interested, and even there, it doesn't come in really close all the time. Sometimes it will come in as close as to give us dialogue, but those are almost glimpses, right? More, it's doing it's it's doing sort of summary of them. In these stories, it's not only that we are down there at that level of sort of dialogue at that more. Um, more immediate kind of ground-level point of view of these stories throughout. That's true. But even more striking than that is the fact that the characters with whom we are sort of shoulder-to-shoulder shoulder as we are reading these stories are not primarily the elves, but the Valar. Um, and that is, to me, one of the most remarkable things about the Book of Lost Tales as a, as a, as a story. Um, and in that framework, therefore, when we talk about the mystery of the jealousy of elves and men, it's not a mystery to it's it's a mystery to men given. It's a mystery to elves given. But the statement seems to be declaring that it's a mystery to the Valar as well. They too don't understand it. Um, all they appear to be able to do is say such things must be. Right, and we'll look at this more. I'm not expecting to sort of prove this point or, uh, you know, support this particular reading that I'm giving here about the point of view of these stories from this one passage alone. Goodness knows. But again, it's 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 one of the things which is to me most striking. In the Silmarillion, um, when we are told about mysteries, right, things things that are fated and prophesied, and the sort of the plan, uh, 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 you know, the 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 music and how the music is being played out in the world and what Iluvatar's plan is for the world. There are many things about that that we don't know, that aren't revealed to us in those stories. But most of the time there's always this sense, and sometimes it's explicitly said, that the Valar do know, right? Though the Valar may know, we don't, right? Um, um, you know, though, though, though Manway may know, he has not revealed it. Um, that's the mode of the Silmarillion. Again, so in places where we're ignorant, in places where there are mysteries that we don't comprehend, we have this sense that at least there's somebody in the joint who does get it, right? Who, who is privy to these things. We don't have that sense, I think, in the Book of Lost Tales. When it is a mystery, we're already, we, the point of view of the readers is pretty near the very top of the food chain. Not quite at it. Well, uh, well, well the food chain is the wrong metaphor here. Um, uh, uh, let us say the pinnacle of the mountain, right? Um, we're not quite at the pinnacle of the mountain, but we're close. We're pretty high up. And because most of the time we are looking down at, um, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, in a negative sense, um, but we are, we are we're, we're, we are being invited to look down upon the actions of the Valar happening, unfolding below us, even their feelings and their thoughts and motivations. Um, we're not the absolute, our point of view is not at the absolute pinnacle. Um, but there's a sense in which, remember we talked about this before as well, where did these stories come from, how authoritative can they really be? Well, presumably they come from the Valar themselves. And I take that, therefore, um, 
thinking about the frame, which is, of course, such a prominent part of these stories, I'm thinking of the frame of the Book of Lost Tales and the role, the, the, the effect that it has on this particular um, understanding, that is our understanding of the, our sort of our, our judgment of the Valar, or, or more um, our judgment of how the Valar are depicted. There seem to me a couple possibilities that we can take. One is that the, um, that is a, a couple interpretive routes that we can take that is in our interpretation of the frame. One is for us to find the frame um, sort of blasphemous, right? That is, this is a very this is a very disrespectful kind of frame. They're obviously not taking the Valar very seriously, not going out of their way to uh, uh, to 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 maintain the dignity of the Valar. In fact, one might almost imagine them going out of their way, or one one could perhaps suspect that they might even be going out of their way to tear down the Valar. One could. I think maintain such a reading of the frame, except I don't think it makes a lick of sense. I mean, based on everything we hear from from Lindo and Vire and Meroli Tarinki, I don't think we have much reason to believe um, that they're actually secret Valar haters and are 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 like indulging through these tales in a smear campaign of the character of the Valar. Rather, it seems to me that the more plausible interpretation of this is that these stories, in more or less this form, have come down to them from the Valar and that they know these things because the Valar have told them. Rather, that is to say, my conclusion is rather that this is a part of the humility of the Valar, more than it is the disrespect of the elves. Um, that the Valar have not concealed their own ignorance. We will see, we will look at some of the examples of, of the follies, even, dare I say it, the wickedness of the Valar, the, the, the or at least the misdemeanors. One of the things that I'm thinking of here is the uh, uh, the really kind of scandalous destruction of the Herald of Melko. I mean, the Herald of Melko is really obnoxious when Melko bring, sends that false Herald, false in the sense that he doesn't actually, Melko doesn't actually intend to parley with them. But the way that they break truce with him, and, you know, Tolkis just can't restrain himself, of course, being Tolkis, uh, and so he runs down and picks him up and throws him off a cliff, um, you know, and then they, like, afterwards, they're like, and uh, he was no true herald, so uh, his diplomatic protection is totally invalidated, uh, so that was fine, right? But, I mean, come on, man, like, you can talk that way all you want. It was clearly... That was clearly a wrong thing that they did, right? So the fact that we see them not only being emotional, but being impulsive, and having their impulses leading them to do not only foolish things, but uh, dubious things, right? So again, I take that to be, within the framework that we're given here in the Book of Lost Tales, an indication of the humility of the Valar themselves, um, but it doesn't change the fact that there that that therefore again what I conclude about this based on how this is told is that more is being put in the category of mystery. More is being the more is dim uh, to the Valar um, as to the elves and to the men than we get in the Silmarillion. There is much more uncertainty, much more we don't really understand or know what's going on, um, and therefore. That's the, 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 the one thing that this passage really um, uh, really uh, suggests to me. If you, um, 
if you knew how many more slides I had, you'd really laugh at me that I'm still on number one. But this is totally setting up all the other things that we're going to look at. We're going to be able to be so efficient later because we've gone over some of these fundamental points here. It's going to be really remarkable. Um, another moment, of course, which, as I promised last time, we would not skip over completely um, and which strongly bears on this question of the nature of evil uh, in the Book of Lost Tales is the description of Ungoliant. Un very deep and winding were those ways, having a subterranean outlet on the sea, as the ancient books say, and here on a time were the, sun and, were the sun and moon imprisoned afterward. For here dwelt the primeval spirit Moru, whom even the Valar know not whence or when she came, and the folk of earth have given her many names. Mayhap she was bred of mists and darkness on the confines of the shadowy seas, in that utter dark that came between the overthrow of the lamps and the kindling of the trees. Okay, so that's theory number one, right? Theory number one about the origin of Ungoliant is that she is a creature of Earth, fundamentally. She is an Earth monster who was bred of in the utter dark. She was bred of mists and darkness in the utter dark between the overthrow of the lamps and the kindling of the trees. So we have her, we have her within the chronological, you know, her birth and her, her genesis within the chronological framework of the Earth time and her substance being made of earthly substances, right? So she's, she's just a creature, some kind of, byproduct of the darkness of the world. In this sense, if this were true, then she would be, um, we would see her as fundamentally a, um, uh, fundamentally a, uh, I, I guess a byproduct of Melko's music, really, um, as the twisting of many of the other creatures into monsters seemed to be. Um, but that's probably not it. But more like, we are told, she has always been it's a pretty flat statement, is it? She has always been. And she it is who loveth still to dwell in that black place, taking the guise of an unlovely spider, as opposed to the lovely spiders, spinning a clinging gossamer of gloom that catches in its mesh stars and moons and all bright things that sail the airs. Catching, catches in its mesh stars and moons. I love that. Like, there used to be a whole bunch of moons, but Ungoliant ate most of them, unfortunately. Indeed, it was because of her labors that so little of that overflowing light of the two trees flowed ever into the world, for she sucked light greedily, and it fed her, and she brought forth only that darkness that is a denial of all light. Ungueliante, the great spider who enmeshes, did the Eldar call her, naming her also Wirilome, or Gloomweaver, Whence still do the Nodoli speak of her as Ungoliant, the spider, or as Guerlum, the black? Okay. Um, it is not only the fact that she is described, that it was, it said that it's, it's more like that she has always been, which is a pretty remarkable thing to say, um, but also the fact that business with darkness and light, but she brought forth only that darkness that is a denial of all light. And this is, to me, a very conspicuous thing because light and darkness is one of the, the most classic illustrations of the Augustinian model of good and evil. Evil is not a positive thing, just as darkness is not a positive thing. Light is a positive thing, right? Darkness is only that place where light is not, and that is the moral nature of evil as well. Good is a positive thing. Evil is the lack 
of goodness. It is in a sense the opposite of goodness, but again, in, according to the Augustinian theory, it is not the opposite in the sense of being equal and opposite to it. Um, that is a dualistic model, the sense that there are two opposing forces, one which we call good and one which we call evil, which are opposed to each other. Uh, and there's much in the language of traditional Christianity which sounds kind of like that, um, but, it's, uh, but it's still fundamentally different from a lot of, these, a lot of the fundamental ideas, and certainly uh, St. Augustine um, was very emphatic about uh, the rejection of dualism and spent a lot of his career dedicated to that. But um, uh, this sounds a great deal more dualistic, doesn't it? It seems really conspicuous that light and darkness, again, that classic metaphor for the nature of good versus evil, is, is, is being touched on there directly, right? Um, that darkness, which is a, a denial of all light. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, so there is a sense in which the darkness that... Ungre liante um, makes is a posit is in fact a positive thing. Um, uh, now it is. She still does feed on light. There is a sense in which she is still parasitic, um, but again, but it's so. But the boundaries are so much less clear um, than they will become later on, um, and this sense of the the sense of the positive darkness that has always been. Um, and also notice again, nobody's sure what to do with Ungoliant, right? What is she? We don't really know. The Valar don't apparently know. Notice even the sense in which, you know, here are the Valar, they're in Valinor, right? And they're all like, yay, here we are, happy in the blessed realm, and we've got the trees, and it's bright, and it's wonderful, and okay, Middle-earth is still kind of, you know, excuse me, the Great Lands are still, are still pretty dark, okay, but... Um, I don't know, maybe they get some light, and they're not even aware of the fact that that Ungoliant is there siphoning off all the light that does in fact escape from the Blessed Realm um, and is preventing it from getting to the Great Lands. They don't even seem aware um, that this is going on. Um, you know, Andrew says, always been implying co-evil with Iluvatar. I don't know. I don't know how to read that. Um, it's, I mean... The phrase has always been sure sounds that way. I mean, again, it, 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 it suggests something much more dualistic, and indeed her exploits, that is, catching stars and moons in her webs, uh, certainly makes her sound much more like a cosmic force uh, than like a random monster. And um, I, now, of course, that's that's true despite the fact that stars and moons themselves are uh, much more minor figures, right, uh, within the context of this mythology. That is, if, if the stars are, you know, variously, you know, like sparks from Aule's forge, and you know, they're like these, these sort of gem-like things that Varda has put up in the sky, um, that sounds a lot less difficult to ensnare and consume by a very... Um, um, by a very um, large, you know, a supernaturally large spider um, uh, than, you know, stars as we know them. But anyway, still, nevertheless, um, certainly gives her a very great deal of stature. Um, uh, Tim makes a really interesting point um, and says, uh, you know, has always been implies time, and Iluvatar is beyond time. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm thinking, yeah, Carol, uh, Carol in uh, Morehouse was asking about um, um, th th that she's always been, um, she was thinking about that in connection with Tom Bombadil. Um, you know, also like Tom Bombadil, did she dwell in the same place? Um, has she always been in the same sense in which Tom Bombadil is eldest? Um, I don't know. Carolyn's an interesting kind of connection, not because I'm suggesting that Tom Bombadil is like Ungoliant in many other ways, um, but rather, if Carolyn, if I'm understanding you right, then I agree with you that I would, in thinking of, is this way of speaking kind of like Tom Bombadil's way of speaking? Um, because, of course, if Tom Bombadil is indeed, as he certainly appears to be, an immortal spirit, uh, calling himself eldest doesn't really make much sense. That is, you know, if you've got a, you know, you know, there were the Ainu who were the Ainu who were the offspring of, of his thought, okay, I mean, maybe he created one of them before the rest of them, and, like, maybe that was eventually Tom Bombadil, but I don't think that's what Tom Bombadil's talking about, right? In the context, he seems to be saying, I've been here in this world, in this spot for longest. Um, maybe, you know, maybe, Carolyn, there's a similar kind of sense of that, you know, Timothy, thinking of what you were saying, that there can't be any comparison with Iluvatar, as Iluvatar is presumably separated from time, but, uh, oh, and Yana was saying the same thing. Um, oh, so, so Yana, I, yeah, you're right, sorry, I completely missed that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, that Yana was saying it sounded like Tom Bombadil too, yeah. Um, now Nancy points out that she isn't localized like Tom, that's true, um, she doesn't have her own domain, except in the sense that gloom and darkness are her domain. Um, but um, but even there, she's got competition, right? Fui is the is the weaver of, of of glooms and shadows. Maybe not literally so much. Maybe Fui is in charge of the emotional shadows and and uh, ungoliant the literal shadows. Um, but um, But I'm thinking, Nancy, was it you who were connect? Yes, Nancy was connecting Ungoliant to entropy earlier on. Now, I, I certainly don't think that that's in, that's uh, uh, Tolkien's concept, you know, back here in the 19 teens. But um, but the idea of chaos is certainly an old one, um, and the sense in which you know what happens at the beginning of creation in Genesis. Uh, in uh, at the beginning of Genesis and creation, God says, "Let there be light," right? Which means presumably there was darkness before, right? He separates the light from the darkness. Um, so you know, is that is that the sense in which she has always been, right? That gloom and shadow uh, has always been since time be you know, in, in the moment of the beginning of time and creation, the the creation begins when light is separated from darkness. I don't know, but I mean, in here we're roving very far afield from what the music of the Ainur actually says, um, you know, so I don't really know. But that's part of the point that I would make, is that none and nobody really knows. This whole thing is a mystery. This whole paragraph is full of wild speculations and uncertainties, right? The point, the, the, the real take-home that I would urge is not us trying to sort out a real theory of Ungoliant, but um, rather observing the fact that nobody, even the Valar, seem to know either A, that she's there, or B, what the heck she is when her presence is indeed obtruded upon them. Um, and that seems to be much more 
the sort of overall tenor of this work. The world itself, the history, past and future of the world, and the plans of Iluvatar seem to be much more fundamentally mysterious and concealed, even from the Valar in these stories, than is true in the later Silmarillion versions. Um, remember, remember in the introduction to the Book of Lost Tales when Christopher Tolkien was talking about sort of uh, the, the kind of... Well, he was sort of debunking the idea that if you told more of the back stories of the back history, like that is if you publish the Silmarillion, it's going gonna, it's gonna to flatten out the Lord of the Rings, right? That, that the, the perception of depth which we get from hearing about the ancient world without really knowing those stories, as if that sense of depth is going to be decreased by actually hearing the stories, and he, he sort of jokes about it, and then if you go all the way back to creation, then you've struck the bottom, right? There's no more depth that's possible because you've, you've gone back to the very beginning. Um, and um, I, I... So again, recalling what Christopher Tolkien was saying there, um, he was saying that you know, clearly it's not the case that in, uh, in going back and telling these stories, even going back and telling creation, you're just robbing it of all of its depth and all of its mystery and all of its interest. I would say that we are a lot, you know, in the Book of Lost Tales in particular, um, there is still a vast well of untold story, indeed of untellable story, of unknown story. Um, uh, that um, much more so than in the later published Silmarillion. We are here in a world of mystery. Um, we are not only are we only getting part of the story, and there's a much greater, you know, much much greater story that we don't fully know and that we don't understand. Um, we are aware of only scratching the surface. Um, but again, that seems to be all that there is to know. The Valar themselves don't know it either. Um, and that, I think, is a really fascinating element when we think about this. Um, that was When we think about this as the way Tolkien was conceiving his secondary world here at the beginning, that element of mystery, of uncertainty, of we don't really know the answers, but here's how we understand, or here are some, a, a couple different ways in which we understand this thing. Um, and then, in some ways, it's being us up to us to wonder, like in this paragraph, are just the elves ignorant, right? You know, did they not get the full story on Ungoliant from the Valar? Do the Valar themselves not know? Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that I, I'm not really sure. That's something that's sort of up for discussion, right? It's one of the ways in which we get, I think, a very rich uh, depth in these stories. Um, um, and it's one of the ways in which it's, it seems to me one of the fundamental effects of his choice of the frame narrative, and one of the reasons why I find that choice to be a very natural one uh, for Tolkien. Of course, I'm teaching right now the Canterbury Tales um, in uh, in my uh, in my Signum University class, and uh, so of course, you know, teaching the Book of Lost Tales and the Canterbury Tales at the same time is kind of interesting because I've been thinking a lot about that you know sort of relationship between the two different narrative levels and the ways in which an author can sort of take advantage of that. Um, Chaucer takes advantage of that in the Canterbury Tales for essentially additional characterization by putting additional buffers, um, additional sort of layers between author and reader. Right, um, so that we have all of these different interpretive levels going on, and enables Chaucer um, to play off these things um, 
he can depict multiple levels of idiots uh, in his stories. Not only can he tell stories about people acting foolishly, he can have the story about people acting foolishly uh, being told by a foolish teller whose foolhardiness we can see, or perhaps the narrator who's telling us that story doesn't see it, but in the way that he describes it, we're still unable to see it. And it's, you know, the way that Chaucer plays with that is really interesting. With Tolkien, he's not interested in doing exactly the same thing, it seems. Rather, it's more about, like, the framework of our knowledge, right? Um, that these stories as stories, or, or, or these stories as myth, are um, stories that we're encouraged to think about, but not just sort of take as like, here's a bird's eye view of what creation looked like and, and what the beginning of the world was like. Um, here's just like a sort of a journalistic narrative account of that. Rather, we have the mediation of the different storytellers, right? So what we have is, here's what happened at the Kinslaying, as it appeared to the Noldor, you know, as we've gotten it through these tellers, uh, or rather, here's what we here's what was going on back in back in Valinor, as has been told to these elves by probably the Valar, or maybe by the other elves who got it from the Valar, who themselves might not fully understand what was going on, um, and therefore, you know, our own sense of sort of uh, mediated understanding, the way in which we are getting only sort of a glimpse of a glimpse of a glimpse of the real picture. It seems to me sort of a fundamental part of the structure of the story that Tolkien is creating. And it's one of the things that we see him do throughout his stories. It's one of the fascinating things, even about The Lord of the Rings, which once you start thinking about it in these terms, becomes really fascinating. You know, the whole who exactly is narrating this passage and how much did that person know and from what point of view is that person telling it and we're encouraged to think about the text in this way by things like the note on the Shire records being reminded that these were texts these this was a story that is not just being told to us by an omniscient third-person narrator but rather texts that have survived and been handed down written by particular people from particular points of view in the story and transmitted to us by a particular way and all of those things we need to take into account that kind of storytelling the effect of that kind of storytelling seems to be something that Tolkien was himself very very interested in and I think that we can see that happening very richly in the book of Lost Tales this is why as I say that choice of that kind of a frame narrative in this way really doesn't uh, surprise me at all. Um, okay, I'm continuing to just power through my slides at an epic pace, uh, so let us uh, keep up the keep up the good work. Now, I'll say one more thing. The last thing, of course, again, just to just to to to, to sort of remember the note in passing here. We we do get what sound certainly like very dualistic elements here. Um, it certainly does not seem that. Tolkien's concept, which I think later on will grow to be a much more emphatically Augustinian idea of evil, is not really there yet. In fact, I'd even go so far as to say that it seems uh, seems a bit muddy. Um, sometimes he talks like an Augustinian, sometimes he talks like a dualist uh, in these, and it does not really seem to be clear. It doesn't seem to be really worked out. Does this mean that Tolkien himself had not really worked this out yet, that he hadn't thought this through? Um, that seems possible to me. Can we chalk it up to that, again, that transmission of the story and 
who knows how much about what and can you know that the these dualistic elements are perhaps something that's come in if, you know from their transmission either from their transmission to the elves or their transmission to Ariel remember who is ultimately going to be the one who brings these stories and the story about the telling of the stories back from Tolarisea to our world and that's presumably how we're going to get them eventually uh, in order for them to have been published in this book um, you know, we could we can certainly do that too, um, but I certainly think we don't see nearly as coherent of a sort of a, a philosophical and theological picture behind the Book of Lost Tales that we do um, in uh, in the published Silmarillion. But one other thing that, of course, I really noticed was Melko's grievance. Um, what drove Melko to begin to stir up the trouble, which ultimately, you know, led to the collapse of Valinor? was interesting. Now core is lit with this wealth of gems. We've just had this, the description of the making of all the gems. And sparkles most marvelously. And all the kindred of the Aldalie are made rich in their loveliness by the generosity of the Noldoli. And the gods' desire of their beauty is sated to the full. Sapphires in great wonder were given to Manwe, and his raiment was crusted with them, and Orome had a belt of emeralds, but Yavanna loved all the gems, and Aule's delight was in diamonds and amethysts. Melko alone was given none of them, for that he had not expiated his many crimes, and he lusted after them exceedingly, yet said not, feigning to hold them of lesser worth than metals. Melko's evil, by contrast to Ungoliant, is not primeval at all, right? In Melko, we don't see the force of primeval darkness. In Melko, we see a guy who's been snubbed and who is bitter, right? We see pride and vanity. Um, what we also don't see is his desire for the gems, yes, but notice the desire for the gems is contextualized in the fact that he's been denied them, right? That they've been given to everybody else, but not to him. Being singled out as the one who doesn't receive any gifts um, seems to be the thing, I mean, I take that anyway, as the thing that burns him most. Um, in the published Silmarillion, we get the passion, the lust, the desire of Melko for Melkor. Sorry, I'm talking about Silmarillion now. Um, for the jewels and for the Silmarils in particular, right? That they are things of beauty that excite his desire. Indeed, the Silmarils excite, usually tragically, the desire of everybody who sees them. Um, but that doesn't. There's that. That element is here. Um, but, Yana, I agree. Petty is exactly the word that I kept coming back to when I was thinking about this, this, this passage. Um, uh, it's, um, yeah, Nancy uh, Fosberg says, uh, Melko is so childish in this version of the story. It does kind of sound like that, doesn't it? Um, I mean, it's, 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 I mean, again, there's, 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 there's pride here, but, but that element of vanity, not just pride, but vanity, um, um, you know, he's snubbed. He's like the guy with no date for the prom. I, I mean, it's, uh, it, this, this is not ongoing, right? Um, but I think that the, the very triviality of the root of his grievance here against the Noldoli uh, and against Feanor and against, uh, is, 
is I think that that's actually kind of significant here, um, that we are being shown. In, in the end, this is not about um, a sort of a noble desire on his part. He can talk big and be like, I am, you know, the rightful king of this world. But it's been shown to us that really what rankled him is he, he was passed over in the distribution of gems, right? And really ticked him off. And he's never going to forgive the Noldoli for that, right? And the very pettiness of that, I think, it really sort of... Uh, 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 Timothy Fisher says, the banality of evil. Yes, that's exactly how it strikes me. Um, we are sort of shown that in the end... Uh, even a you know sort of a great and horrifying evil figure at root um, is kind of a small, petty, even sort of pitiable thing. Um, and you're right, Don. It's still an aspect of egotism, which is also pride. And I'm not trying to downplay pride and make oh, pride is such a small thing. Of course, it's not a small thing. Um, it is the greatest of all sins within the Christian world and you know, within the, the Christian framework. So again, not certainly not 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 downplaying that. Um, uh, but but again it's merely but it contextualizes that pride very different, doesn't it, Don? Again, it's not it's not just pride in the like immensely swollen, grandiose kind, right? But pride in a this really small and petty, I keep coming back to that word. Um, uh, in this uh, in this this really sort of menial way, um, yeah yeah. Um, <laughs> Carolyn Morehouse does feel compelled to point out that the rest of the Valar do seem to be rubbing it in his face a bit. You know, man weighs crusted raiment. You know, he's going around just absolutely, uh, just absolutely loaded down with sapphires, and then there's poor Melko, you know, gnawing his tongue in anger. Um, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Kate says, uh, Kate Neville says, it's also kind of ironic that Manway buys Milko's repentance, but Feanor doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Manway, yeah, yeah. Um, Manway, um, does seem to have some limitations, doesn't he? We're going to come back to that in just a second. Um, but let's look at the Silmarils briefly. And I'm going to look at them only briefly because uh, that would be appropriate because indeed we only see them briefly in this story. Then arose Feanor of the Noldoli. And I want you, by the way, as we do this, um, tell, me, uh, tell me what you notice. Um, tell me what strikes you in this description of the Silmarils. So as I read, go ahead and type out the things that strike you most about the depiction of the Silmarils and the story of their creation. Then arose Feanor of the Noldoli, and fared to the Solosimpi, and begged a great pearl. And he got, moreover, an urn full of the most luminous phosphor light, gathered of foam in dark places. And with these he came home, and he took all the other gems, and did gather their glint by the light of white lamps and silver candles. And he took the sheen of pearls, and the faint half-colors of opals, and he bathed them in phosphorescence, and the radiant dew of silpion, and but a, t a single tiny drop of the light of Laurelin did he let fall therein, giving all those magic lights a body to dwell in of such perfect glass as he alone could make, nor even Aule compass, so great was the slender dexterity of the fingers of Feanor. He made a jewel, and it shone of its own something, something that I can't read, uh, that Christopher Tolkien can't read, radiance in the utmost dark. And he set it therein and sat a very long while and gazed at its beauty. 
Then he made two more, and he had no more stuffs. And he fetched the others to behold his handiwork, and they were utterly amazed. And those jewels he called the, sil the Silmarilli, or as we say, the name in the speech of Noldoli today, Silubrothen. Okay. What did you guys notice? Okay. Um, good. Nancy notices he doesn't make the Silmarils by himself. He needs the Solo Simpi to give him pearls. Yes, he has models. Um, uh, he has models which are not just the light of the tree, right? It's not just out of his own mind. Um, he's, uh, um, yeah, yeah, it's, the Silmarils are more derivative in this sense. Yeah, Andrew says it's like a recipe, right? Yeah, it's, this does sound like a recipe, right? Um, uh, in fact, that would be really funny to draw that up, right? Uh, Silmarilli, or you put it at the top, Silubrilfin, right? Uh, a a no-fail recipe. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, and Kate is pointing out as as uh, as uh, which I think is is being implied in some of these observations that the rest of you are making also, that um, there's more than just the light of the trees here, right? This is not just a question of let me somehow capture the perfect light of the trees and preserve it within the Silmarils. Um, the remember that's a major issue in the published Silmarillion, right? You know that that he wants to keep and to have for himself some of the light of the trees. Um, and, you know, and it's almost like, you know, it's, it's like a desire to hoard it away for himself, which seems to be not so good. Um, but then it's like, well, it's a fail-safe, right? Well, it's a good thing Fanor kept around some of that light um, uh, later on, but then, of course, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't want to give it up. But... Um, but yeah, Kate, there's more than just the light of the trees, right? The light of the trees are there, right? We get both the light of Silpian and the light of Laurelin present in the Silmarillions, in the Sil in the Silmarilli here, but they are only two of the forms of light, right? The faint half colors of opals, uh, phosphorescence, uh, most notably, he gets a he gets a whole bucket, uh, sorry, an urn, not a bucket, uh, full of luminous phosphor light, right, um, from foam in dark places. Um, that stuff illuminates the Silmarils as much as anything else. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Don is observing, he begs, right? Um, he begged a great pearl. Yeah, now, Don, that could be a figure of speech, right? We don't necessarily need to imagine Fanor, you know, down on his knees groveling uh, and requesting it. You know, it could just be a figure of speech. He's like, uh, hey, uh, kind of a pearl. Um, but still, he is that posture uh, of uh, Feanor's and, and the sort of the sense that there is in that sense an element that is cooperative, right? Um, uh, that, uh, you know, and uh, Nancy was saying that at the beginning, he doesn't make the Silmarils himself. He needs the Solo Simpi to give him pearls. Um, yeah, yeah, it's not just his own um, just his own creation. Um Good. Sharon Powell points out that all of the lights are called magic. Yes. These magic lights, not just Silpian and Laurelin, but like the phosphorescent of, of foam in dark places is also a magic light in its way, um, as are the half-colors of opals and the sheen of pearls. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. Um, good, good. Um, <laughs> several people, including Dime, really like the idea of Feanor begging. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and I agree with Kate Neville. Something that struck me about it as well is, you know, Kate says it's like they're super gems. They're not sui generis. Yeah, they're not. They're not a thing on their own. Now there are things that are like the Silmarils and the Silmarillion, but not not as great. Um, but yet here, I get especially coming on the heels of of the of the making of gems, as we as we've already read about it, it seems much more clear that these things uh, that. Uh, um, the Silmarilli are just more like the same. They're super duper gems, but they're not fundamentally different. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, of course, the other really noteworthy thing is that they don't really hang around. Um, they're not at the center of this story. Um, Feanor does not primarily leave Valinor in order to regain the Silmarils. He talks about regaining that which was lost. He and the other Noldoli are still bitter about having their work stolen from them by Melko. But what really pushes him over the edge is vengeance for his father. And remember, Manwe is sitting there saying, oh, I feel you know, great evil is going to come of this death. Um, not only are they not at the center of this story, I do not, in all honesty, believe that I could have predicted their centrality. That is, I mean, it's hard because we know it's going to happen, right? I mean, when we read this passage, this passage about the Silmarils, we perk up. We're like, ooh, ooh the Silmarils, all right, let's see how the Silmarils are handled in the Book of Lost Tales. Because the Silmarilli are the big deal, right? Um, you know, they are, they are at the core, they're not the whole story, but they're at the core of the, you know, the whole story as it's going to be unfolded throughout what we shall later come to think of as the first age. But they're not here. And it's hard to imagine how, again, like, would we even have guessed that they would be? Um, it doesn't really seem like it. You, we can see Feanor emerging as a central character. We can see his role and the significance of his role in the departure of the Noldoli and the tragic events surrounding that. But, um, uh, but not, not, uh, not the, the Silmarilli, exactly. Um, Nancy asks, when did he start calling it the Silmarillion? Later. Um, of course, Nancy, that's a, a very important point not to be an understated, right? This is the Book of Lost Tales. This is not the Silmarillion. Um, it's uh, it's not called that. Um, uh, 1930 is when it will be, you know, sort of labeled then. In that later version of the story, where he's going to go from here is going to be in doing longer versions of individual stories, right? He's going to sit down with the children of Hurin and you know work on the alliterative children of Hurin poem. Um, he's going to he's going to work on the Lay of Lathian, right? He's going to sit down and try to write, you know, sort of the epic poem version of the Baron and Luthien story. Um, that's his next impulse after the Book of Lost Tales. It's only when he comes back and and starts to do the first of his epitomizing, to use Christopher Tolkien's word, uh, the first of his epitomizing treatments of these stories, that he begins to call it um, the Quintus Silmarillion. So. Um, Later, later. 
Um, now, Sharon Powell does point out, and I agree this is an important point, that Feanor is entranced by his creation. Uh, that's right, and I think we can, so we can see sort of the seeds of the way in which the Silmarillion are going to entrance everybody, and we can even see, I mean, it's it's not that it's totally absent, right? We see Melko already singling them out, right? He claims them for himself and won't give them to Ungolian. They don't have a big fight about it in this version, but anyway, you know, it, that's still there. Um, he still separates them out, but again, this is still, you know, Kate, thinking what you were saying, this is more of Silmarillion super jewels, right? He, he's going to keep them because they're obviously the best of all of the jewels that the Noldor, that the Noldor, excuse me, made. Um, so he's going to hang on to those, you know. But it's okay; he'll give the rest of them to uh, to to Ungolian. But there's none of that. Like, I am willing to sell my birthright for these <laughs> gems, kind of thing. You know, I name these unto myself. Um, uh, it's um, it's not. It just does not have anything like the same kind of uh, the same kind of spirit. Um, you'll notice Fanor swears no oath, right? There's no hint of that. There's no hint of I'm going to swear this blasphemous oath. So determined am I, Fanor, to name the Silmarils to myself and to claim them and to regain them that I'm willing to you know throw everything else in creation under the bus in, as a means to to that end. Um, we don't. There's nothing like that. Right? It's just they're going to go out and they're going to take vengeance on their enemy and they're going to regain the stuff that he stole. They still think he has all of the stuff, not just the Silmarils, and, uh, um, and of course avenge their dead, in particular his father. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Sarah says there's nothing uh, about the fates of earth and air and water uh, in the Silmarils either, so was Arendel always involved with them? <sighs> He was always associated with the Evening Star, um, so that idea of the, of radiant Arendel was always there. Um, but no, you know what he was associated with way back in the in these very early days. What he was associated with was killing Ungoliant, um, the greatest of the of the very many feats of Arendel. Um, Arendel in the published Silmarillion is comparatively a one-trick pony. That is, like, all we hear about Ayarendel was his one great voyage, right? And there's a very brief reference to the fact that he went on lots of voyages, but but really the entire... his entire role in the published Silmarillion is just about his trip to Valinor. Um, but in the older Ayarendel stories, he had this very... his story is very long and very complicated, and the biggest feature in it is he kills Ungoliant. Um, he slays the darkness itself. Um, so um, that was the that was the focal point of his uh, of his journey, um, less the uh, the Silmaril thing. But let's move on again at my uh, my 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 breakneck pace that I've been uh, steadily maintaining throughout this class <laughs> and let's go on uh, to look at some more passages uh, about the Valar again thinking about what I was talking about before about the vantage point of the story I want to want to show you a little bit more some of the passages that really jumped out to me in thinking about this um, about how we are really sort of shoulder to shoulder with the Valar in this story and how um, you know, in, in, in seeing that, we can see how they've also been kind of brought down 
to our level in several different ways. Here's one passage from a passage we discussed last time, or rather the paragraph following a passage we discussed last time. You remember the speech that Manway made after the, 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 the theft of the Silmarils and the, and the slaying of Fanor's dad. Manway gives that speech where he's like, shame on you. Noldoli, right? Shame on you to be so so uh, full of covetous in your hearts. Um, and you know, we talked about how you know it, it was a sort of a just speech to make, but it was it made him sound like kind of a jerk. Well, this is the pa paragraph immediately after that speech, and the embassy was a bastard. So the Noldoli who came to Manway to say, hey. Melkor robbed us and killed our people. And the embassy was abashed and afraid, and went back unto Sira Numan, utterly cast down. Yet was Manway's heart heavier than theirs, for things had gone ill indeed, and yet he foresaw that worse would be. And so did the destinies of the gods work out. For lo, to the Noldoli Manway's words seemed cold and heartless, and they knew not his sorrow and his tenderness. And Manway thought them strangely changed, and turned to covetous, who longed but for comfort, being like children, very full of the loss of their fair things. Isn't that sad? Isn't that sad that we, what we're shown here is a failure of communication on both sides, right? They left thinking that Manway sounded like a jerk, right? Sounded cold and heartless, but really he is sorrowful and grieving for them, but he spoke to them sternly, as sternly as he did, not because he doesn't care, but because he didn't perceive this true state of their hearts, thinking them covetous when really they were just like children, very full of the loss of their fair things, right? Um, that Manway has kind of failed in compassion here. Um, Neil, I agree, Neil says that's tragedy, it is tragedy, right? Neither side is really in the wrong here. Both of their points of view are understandable, um, and yet we see the gap. Again, notice that this is what I mean when I say that throughout this story, or rather repeatedly in this story, we are put in a position above the Valar looking down at them. Manway doesn't see this gap. We do, right? We are told. But now, presumably, again, thinking of the framework of the story, this comes because in retrospect, they can now understand, presumably Manway sorted this out in retrospect and was like, man, I really fell asleep at the switch there with an old OA. I totally mismanaged, should have handled that totally differently. You know, sort of like, um, sort of like a, you know, a parent with your second kid, you know, like, man, I'm not going to make the same mistakes I made with my first kid, right? Now I understand this better. That's probably Manway here after the fact, I'm guessing. But anyway, but the point is, this story in this narrative, as we are following it along, we are shown things that Manway himself at the time did not understand. And that puts us in a remarkable position and one which I think we have to recognize the significance of and the impact that it has on this story as a whole. Um, because we are not in the position that we were in, uh, that we are placed in in the published Silmarillion, where the Valar are still way above us, and rarely are we even told what they say, much less told, you know, sort of shown the limits of their knowledge in this, in this, uh, uh, in this same way. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, the gods 
Also, here's a, this, this passage also struck me as fascinating um, for its point of view as well, especially recalling the, the parallel passage in the Silmarillion. Now came that grievous news to the gods and the other elves, and at first none believed. This is the news of the kinslaying, of course, uh, and the departure of the, Nold, of the Noldoli. Nonetheless, the tidings came still unto them, and by many different messengers. Some were of the Teleri, who had heard the speech of Feanor in the square of Kor, and had seen the Noldoli depart thence with all the goods they might convey. Others were of the Solosimpi, and these brought the dire tidings of the swan ship's rape and the dread kinslaughter of the haven, and the blood that lay on the white shores of of Alcalunte. Sorry. Lastly, came some hotfoot from Mendos, who had gazed upon that sad throng nigh the strands of Amnor, and the gods knew that the gnomes were far abroad, and Varda and all the elves wept, for now seemed the darkness black indeed, and that more than the outward light of the fair trees was slain. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, notice... Um, Remember the parallel passage in the published Silmarillion. Fanor is delivering his speech. He's broken the ban of the Valar, and he's come back to uh, to Tyrion, as it is then called. Um, but uh, but you know he's he's been banished. But he breaks his banishment, and he comes back and he delivers this speech. And throughout, there's this sense of like, is lightning going to strike? Right? Is Manwë going to come down? Because obviously the Valar know that this is happening, right? But obviously. The fact that they don't do anything shows that they're holding their hands, right? They obviously they see everything that's happening, and they're they're listening to Fanor, but they're like, okay, you know, they're holding back. Same thing with the kinslaying, right? This is why we see Ose and Uinin respond and wreck some of the ships, but they're responding in rebellion. Manwë has said, "Back off, people!" Right? Yes, they're doing. They're 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 being they're being really bad, but we're, we're going to let them go, right? Here, we get the gods actually ignorant, right? They're only getting news bulletins after the fact, right? They're, you know, elves are coming in and being like, hey, dude, uh, the Noldoli are just leaving, and the gods are like, oh, that's not possible. They wouldn't do that, would they? Are they leaving? Really? Why would they do that? And then, oh my gosh, then they've killed the Solo Simpi? Really? How awful! And Mando senses, um, FYI, they're like way out here now, right? They've gone really quite some distance. They're, they're actually gone. And like, oh man, I guess it's true, right? Um, I'm not trying to diminish it. I don't want to, you know, sort of infantilize the Valor. That's not my point. I think that the story that we get here is a very effective story in its own way. I'm not at all trying to say that this is like a, you know, sort of a rinky-dink version of the much grander story that we're going to get in the Silmarillion. It's just a very different kind of story. What we get are gods who themselves don't know. They are responding to events. They are, in this way the victims of events rather than the actors of the events. Um, they, are, they are patients rather than agents, to use uh, old logical terms, old uh, Greek-based logical terms. Um, they, are not the, the, they are not in charge of all of the events. Uh, rather, they are the ones who are having events happening to them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, see... Don, Don asks, I think, the appropriate question, which I think, you know, is, is, is very much what I was just sort of addressing. 
Don says, I'm starting to notice that there seems to be a pattern of immaturity in the book. From the Cottage of Oz play to all these characters whose behavior strikes us as childish, but not childlike. I like that distinction, Don. Uh, I wonder if this is a function of Tolkien's immaturity as a writer, or of a view that the troubles of the world were not were tied to not growing up. Um, I don't know. I mean, certainly as Tolkien's writing matures, these things change. Um, you know, the story is going to look not only look, um, but sound and, and feel very different later on. Um, but I think it's more complicated than that. And here's what I mean by that. It's not that Tolkien, in his early work and his late work, that early Tolkien and late Tolkien are both attempting to do the same thing. Early Tolkien is failing, whereas late Tolkien is succeeding. Right? I don't think that that's what's happening. Rather, I think that um, early Tolkien and late Tolkien are doing two very different things. That they're writing two fundamentally different kinds of stories. And that's... Um, that's the main thing that I want to try to point to, and having pointed to it, try to understand a little bit better um, what kind of story, uh, if we can separate ourselves, because again, as I said from the very beginning, this is the big challenge of reading the Book of Lost Tales, if we can separate ourselves from the story we expect to read because we know the Lord of the Rings and the Silmarillion, right, um, and try to focus instead on the story that Tolkien is actually giving us, um, what he seemed to be attempting to do, or at least what he was doing uh, in these early works, what then do we see? What conclusions can we draw? What kind of story? What's he going for? What is his story working on doing? Um, even if it doesn't seem to be succeeding perfectly at all times. And again, so I don't think that the comparative immaturity, Don, as you're pointing to it, um, or I'd put it a little bit more... Um, um, I'd, 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 I'd put it a little bit more uh, uh, um, vaguely, or not vaguely. I'm not going to take refuge in vagueness. Um, I'd put it more neutrally. Um, not as immaturity, but as foolishness. It doesn't seem like a step up, doesn't it? But, but again, but the reason I say that is we do see the people act foolishly. They act with a lack of wisdom. But it's not simply the lack of wisdom which, you know, once they get some more experience under the, their belts, they're, they're going to sort it out. It's because of their... It's just like ontological foolishness on the part of the Valar. That is, these aren't people who should know better and will eventually come to know better. That's immaturity, right? Rather, they don't know better. It's not in their nature to know better. If we expect them to know better, that's because we're thinking of other characters in a different story. Because in that other story, they do know better. But here they don't. Um, we are being invited to sort of see the Valar operating on our level, on a much more human level. Um, and the response of the Valar to things, the errors that they make, the limitations that they have, I mean, uh, you know, as we see here, um, are, I think, in this way, much more, much more um, striking. Um, you know, Ed asks, uh, are the Valar tied by the music to act rather clueless? Can't they learn? 
in other words. Yes. And in that sense, you know, Don, going back to what you were saying, could we understand them as immature in some sense? Certainly this is still far back in the beginning of the world. But again, remember, even in the historical framework of uh, the Book of Lost Tales, it's not as far back as it's going to be later on. We're not invited to imagine untold eons between us and the darkening of Valinor. When we read the Silmarillion, we are in fact being invited to imagine an unknown number of thousands of years between us and then, right? Distant, distant past. So, if anywhere, you'd think it would be in the published Silmarillion where we could be excused for seeing them as still being kind of newbies, right? They haven't learned as much as they're going to learn because they're still new at this whole, you know, being God's thing. Um, but that's not true in the Book of Lost Tales. In the Book of Lost Tales, the gap between the events of these stories and um, Ariel's time, and therefore our time, um, is 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 still a gap, but it's way smaller. Um, so no, I think the Valar are just smaller in stature, more limited in their abilities, more limited in their knowledge. They are much more like mortals. They don't die, but they are much more um, on our level and within our framework. Um, yeah. Uh, Sharon Powell and Philip uh, Menzies are both saying the foolishness... Uh, seems like the foolishness that we can see uh, in in Greek and Norse in the stories of Greek and Norse gods. Philip was saying a similar thing that they're the Valar are fallible like the Olympians, just not quite as bad. You know, it's true they're not quite as venial as the the Olympian gods do seem to be. Um, Sarah King was pointing out the similar thing too. Yes, I agree, and we'll come back to that because you know I'm still. We're still just barely getting up to speed here. We're about to, um, we're about ready to uh, come to the halfway point of class here. Are you ready for the halfway point of class? I think it's about time for the halfway point. <laughs> Let's keep going. Speaking of the limitations of the gods, then said Manwix, this is because this is the sun, right? Figuring out who's going to drive the sun. Then said Manway, looking upon the glory of that ship, as it strained to be away, who shall steer us this boat and guide its course above the realms of earth? For even the holy bodies of the Valar, me seems, may not for long endure to bathe in this great light. They have bodies which appear to be intrinsic to them, that is, not just physical manifestations of their own thought, but actual, like they have bodies in something like the same way that elves and men have bodies, um, and those bodies can be harmed, right? But a great thought came into the heart of Wendy, and she said that she was not a dread, and begged leave to become the mistress of the sun, and to make herself ready for that office, as Iluvatar set it in her heart to do. Then did she bid a many of her maidens follow her, even of those who had aforetime watered the roots of Laurelin with light, and casting aside their raiment, they went down into that pool Fascalan, as bathers into the sea, and its golden foams went over their bodies, and the gods saw them not, and were afraid. <gasps> They're going to drown and burn and be destroyed, right? The, even, the, even the holy bodies of the Valar cannot endure it! But after a while they came again to the brazen shores and were not as before, for their bodies were grown lucent and shone as with an ardor within, and light flashed from their limbs as they moved, nor might any raiment endure to cover their glorious bodies any more. 
like air were they, and they trod as lightly as does sunlight on the earth, and saying no word, they climbed upon the ship, and that vessel heaved against its great cords, and all the folk of Valinor might scarce restrain it. Um, so again, what do we see here? What do we learn? They have bodies, right, and bodily limitations. Again, these are these are the Valar are much more emphatically creatures of the world, right? Um, yeah, and I'm remembering back even to the, the passage about Ungoliant. You know, is she is she of the world and of the stuffs of the world? Um, I, I I love the plural of stuff, by the way. Anytime I can say the word stuffs, uh, I really I really like that. Anyhow. Um, um, uh, or you know, so or, or or is she from from beyond the world? Well, the Valar are are from beyond the world, and yet they still seem to have bodies uh, in a in, in a very concrete and mortal way. So again, we can see our framework on the Valar is really fundamentally different. And not only do they have these bodies, um, but they also lack perspective. Look at this passage. The sun has just the fruit. The last flute of Laurelin has just uh, come to fullness, right on the stem. And Aule reaches out and cuts it, right. He's just cut it from the dead tree, the dead bowl of Laurelin, uh, and he and uh, Tolkis are trying to bear it away. And the other gods are mad. They're shocked when they see him cut it from the tree. Loudly they murmured, and some cried, Woe to him that ravishes anew our tree! And Vanna was in great ire. They don't like lynch Aule for doing this, right? Yet did none dare to draw nigh, for those twain Aule and Tolkas might scarcely bear up, even upon their godlike shoulders, the great globe of flame, and were tottering beneath it. So they, would have, they might have lynched Aule, or attempted to lynch him, except... Uh, He's like already staggering under the fruit, and they don't want to mess up the fruit, right? So we can't take. But boy, when he puts that fruit down, he's he's going to get what's coming to him, right? And also, the mere image of that—the image of Aule and Tolkis carrying something and 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 tottering beneath it, right? I'm like, oh, steady, dude. Oh, oh man, this is, thing is really heavy. How many miles is that from the way that Aule and Tolkis are described in the published Silmarillion? Um, Hearing their anger, indeed, Aule stayed, saying, Cease ye of little wisdom and have a patience. You know, he actually has to stop and be like, People, shut up, I know what I'm doing, right? He calls them ye of little wisdom. It's like, look, trust me, I know what I'm doing. You don't, you clueless people. Remember, these are still, you know, the 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 Valar and their people that we're talking about. But even with those words, his foot went astray, and he stumbled, and even Tolkas might not bear that fruit alone, so that it fell, and striking stony ground burst asunder. So here's Aule rebuking those of little wisdom. Oh, but the irony, him stopping to rebuke them seemed not to be the wisest of things to have done, because in doing so, he himself stumbles and drops the fruit of the sun. So, so we not only have them staggering under the weight of the sun, some they actually drop the thing, right? So we have this like potentially slapstick accident going on here. Um, again, this whole narrative seems 
again, you see what I mean when I say we're looking down on the gods? Again, not that we're being asked to despise them, but that we are above the gods looking down. We, we sort of see the comedy of errors that's unfolding here, right? But then, even more remarkable, is what happened straightway. Such a blinding radiance leapt forth, as even the full bloom of Laurelin had not yielded of old, and the darkened eyes of the valley were, da were dazzled, so that they fell back stunned. But a pillar of light rose from that place, smiting the heavens that the stars paled above it, and the face of Tiniquito went red afar off, and Aule alone of all those there was unmoved by sorrow. So, the breaking open of the sun fruit, when Aule trips and drops it accidentally, turn, accidentally though as a cause of his own lack of wisdom and rebuking the, the lack of wisdom of the rest of the Valar, um, releases this pillar of light, um, and Aule alone is unmoved by sorrow. There they are being like, oh, the sun fruit is broken, right? Everybody's sad. Oh, great. There goes the sun fruit. Then said Aule, of this I can make a ship of light, surpassing even the desire of Manway. And now Varda and many others, even Vana, understood his purpose and were glad. We've got the little light bulbs coming up above the... Even Varda is like, oh, I get it now, Aule. I see your plan. Actually, it's good that this thing split open, right? Now, oh, the light has come. But they made a mighty corbel of twisted gold, and strewing it with ardent pearls of their own bloom, of its own bloom, they laid therein the halves of the fruit of noon, and uplifting it with many hands, bore it away with much singing and great hope. Carolyn says, you bought, you break it, you bought it, Ale. Uh Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Now, one of the things that seems to me amazing about this Ultimately, I mean, the breaking of the fruit was a bad... I mean, they shouldn't have dropped it, right? And uh, that seems like it was a really bad thing. Um, and it is a result of, like, the squabbling of the gods due to their lack of wisdom. And yet, it was a good thing, right? Good came from that apparent accident. Um, the chance, the mischance, which seemed to lead to the dropping of the fruit, revealed the light... Um, and it's then the light of the sun, the 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 light of the broken fruit makes us. <laughs> Arthur says, "When life hands you a broken fruit, <laughs> right? Make a celestial body." Exactly, Arthur. That's the that's the that's the plan, right? Um, that's the moral of the story. But again, notice this kind of thing is a kind of thing that we're going to see happen in Tolkien's writings a lot in the future, right? When something happens which doesn't go according to plan, and in fact it seems to be a bad thing, like, you know, we're trying to figure out which way to go, and then, like, all of a sudden orcs descend upon us, and, and Boromir gets killed, and they capture Merry and Pippin, and now, you know, you're Aragorn, and you don't know what to do, and everything seems like it's falling apart. But guess what? What appeared to be a misfortune turns out to be a good thing. Um, and good comes from all of those things. Um, the same thing happens here. But this is the Valar we're talking about. The Valar themselves are the beneficiaries of fortunate chance. That is, it's like we can still see the plan of Iluvatar unfolding, but the Valar are totally ignorant of it. Right? They are 
they are like sticks floating down the same stream that the elves and men are floating down, right? They're not the water, and they're not the ones who are guiding the water. They're floating down the stream, same as everybody else. That sense, that picture here, um, uh, seems to me really strong, and this 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 incident seems to me really to emphasize that. Um, they're also uh, they're also subject to passions, right? Um, and we see them do some relatively dumb things. Wherefore does Vanna arise and seek Lorenz right after the darkening, right? And with them go Erwendi and Silmo, and many of both Vali and the elves, and they gather much light of gold and silver and great vessels, and fare sadly to the ruined trees. There singeth Lorien most wistful songs of magic and enchantment about the stock of Silpion, and he bid water he, he bid water his roots with the radiance of Telimpe, and this was lavishly done albeit small store thereof, remained now in the dwellings of the gods. In like manner doth Vana, and she sings old golden songs of the happier days, and bids her maidens dance their bright dances, even such as they were used to dance upon the sward of the rose gardens nigh Kululin. And as they danced, she flooded the roots of Laurelin with streams out of her golden jars. Now this doesn't seem like a dumb thing to do. Right? They are both lamenting the fall of the trees and also trying with their own magic and their own influence uh, to revive the trees, right? to breathe life into them. Um, I, I particularly like the maidens dancing their bright dances, right? as if sort of in celebrating, in sort of recapitulating the celebrations of the light, they can, they can help to bring the light back about. This actually, this seems like a fine idea. Yet all their singing and enchantment is of little worth and though the roots of the trees seem to drink all that they may pour, yet they can see no stir of life renewed, nor faintest gleam of light, nor withered leaf grows with sap, nor blossom lifts its drooping stem. Indeed, in the frenzy of their grief, they had poured out all the last remaining stores of brightness that the gods retained, had not a fortune, had not of a fortune, Manwe and Aule come upon them in that hour, being drawn thither by their singing in the gloom, and stayed them, saying, Lo, O Vanna, and thou, O Lorian, what is this rashness? And wherefore did ye not first take counsel of your brethren? For know ye not that that which ye spill unthinking upon the earth is become more precious than all the things the world contains? And when it is gone, perchance not all the wisdom of the gods may get us more. They, they Vanna and Lorian, are misled in their passion in their grief, to act foolishly and to act naively, right? Um, they uh, uh, and also notice here what emerges. What was what was also clear in the previous with the, the the dropping of this of the fruit of noon passage, uh, and with this passage is a pretty big gap between Manwe and Aule. Um, you know, between the greatest of the Valar and the lesser of the Valar. Um, uh, yeah, look at the um, um, look at their. This is going back now a ways further. This is their discovery of the of the Elder. Here's Orome telling his story. Behold, the woods of the great lands, even in Palisor, the midmost region where the pine woods murmur unceasingly, are full of a strange noise. There did I wander, and lo, 'twas 'twas as if folk arose betimes beneath the latest stars. 
There was a stir among the distant trees, and words were spoken suddenly, and feet went to and fro. Then did I say, What is this deed that Pelurian my mother has wrought in secret? And I sought her out and questioned her, and she answered, This is no work of mine, but the hand of one far greater did this. And Luvatar hath awakened his children at the last. Ride home to Valinor, and tell the gods that the Eldar have come indeed. Then she, and notice the naivete there, right? And here's Orme, like, wow. And then I was like, wow, did Mom make these? That's pretty cool. And so I went to Mom, and she was like, no, I didn't make these. Somebody greater than I made these. And he's like, oh, children of Iluvatar. I didn't even think of that, right? I mean, the, the, it's it's adorable. I love this version of the story. Um, and uh, uh, but, but again, not only are they not totally in tune with the plan, the plan totally takes him by surprise. He doesn't even think of it. Then shouted all the people of Valinor, E Eldar Tulier, the Eldar have come. And it was not until that hour that the gods knew that their joy had contained a flaw, or that they had waited in hunger for its completion. But now they knew that the world had been an empty place, beset with loneliness, having no children for her own. And you asked if they could learn? Clearly they can learn, right? They, we see them learning something here. We see them discovering things. Um, that's one of the things that I think makes them so adorable, but also so... Uh, naive is the word I keep coming back to, right? And also so much like us, you know, so much at least on our level, if not a little bit below our level, at least from a narrative standpoint, as we're looking down. Again, we as readers know more than they as actors within the story know. Um, and uh, it's it's uh, it is you know Nancy says you're you're right Nancy it, it is beautiful that last realization the fact that they only now realize that they had been longing for something that they realized they had loved the earth but now they realize the earth was incomplete having now seen this other thing they now realize now the earth is complete where it had not been complete before um, and and that's great again no negative thing about this, but it's a very different world. Here again, we see the impulsiveness of the Valar, but again, more importantly, we see them cut off this wide gulf between them and the knowledge of Iluvatar's plan, right? It's not just that they knew the children were coming and just didn't know when. Remember in the published Silmarillion, Orme's like, oh, the Eldar! Hey, we've been waiting for you guys, right? Here, he's like, I didn't even know what it was, right? He guesses wrong first, right, when he hears them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so, um, but notice another thing, and this is sort of another sort of similar example, but again, I think it's a very beautiful moment. And the trees stood still gaunt and stark, and all the companies wept beholding her, but Manwe said, Weep not, O children of the gods, the irreparable harm, for many fair deeds may be yet to do, and beauty hath not perished on the earth, nor all the counsels of the gods been turned to naught. But nonetheless, folk left that place in sorrow, save Vanna only, and she clung to the bowl of Laurelin and wept. Now was the time of faintest hope and darkness most profound fallen on Valinor that was ever yet, and still did Vanna weep, and she twined her golden hair about the bowl of Laurelin, and her tears dropped softly at its roots. And even as the dew of her gentle love touched that tree, behold, a sudden pale gleam was born in those dark places. 
Then gazed Vana in wonder, and even where her first tears fell, a shoot sprang from Laurelin, and it budded, and the buds were all of gold, and there came light therefrom, like a ray of sunlight beneath a cloud. Manwe has just given wise counsel, right? Manwe has just revealed somewhat of the big picture, right? Um, don't weep. Um, even though he recognizes that the harm is irreparable, right? don't weep the irreparable harm. And again, I have to say, Manwe, you've got a ways to go in your public speaking career, right? We already saw some pretty major uh, public speaking and public relations blunders by Manway last week. Um, this is a great one. Hey, don't weep over the irreparable harm. Not a great comforting approach there. Uh, you're really going to work on your bedside manner there, Manway. Anyway, um, but, but what he goes on to offer for many fair deeds may be yet to do, and beauty hath not perished on the earth. Yes, the trees are gone, but there is still beauty in the world, right? Um, and there are many fair deeds yet to do. Fair deeds, which I think is a, such a crucial thing in that moment, right? It's not just, and we still have lots of work to do, right? It's not just a, let's submit to the fact that everything's going to be awful now, but, you know, we gotta we got to tough it out because we still have stuff to do. It's not going to be fun anymore because the trees are gone now, but we still have to do our jobs even though, right? That's not what he's saying. We still have many fair deeds yet to do. The trees were a fair deed, right? They were a fair making by Yavanna. They, they were very beautiful. We have other beautiful things to make, right? And other beautiful things to do, and there's much beauty left in the world. Um, there's still hope. But Vana's not having a bit of it, right? Um, uh, 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 um, Vana is staying with the tree and just weeping. And here we see her... Um, giving herself over to um, uh, to sorrow to almost what sounds like in the light of Manway's comment a kind of despair right um, and Vana's impulsiveness and Vana's passionate nature by which I merely mean the extent to which she seems to be controlled by her feelings um, are very pronounced in these stories, right? Vana does not seem to be... Uh, I think of the words of the, one of my favorite phrases in the published Silmarillion. Remember when Tolkas is described as being of no avail as a counselor, right? Well, it doesn't sound like Vana's of too much avail as a counselor either, frankly. Um, I wouldn't go to her for advice, honestly, uh, after reading these stories. But... Um, but here, and here, she's just, she's just weeping. She's merely expressing. She's not doing something wise. She's not, um, she's just surrendering to her feelings of sorrow and despair at the loss of the tree that she loved so much. But it's through that sorrow, it's through her own passion that she becomes the unknowing and unplanned by her instrument of fate. Right? Think of the distance, and Dime, you're talking about this. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, the, 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 uh, um, the weeping, of course, recalls Nienna's weeping in the published Silmarillion, but goodness, think about the world of difference between the weeping of Nienna about the trees and the weeping of Vana. Right? Um, Nienna weeps 
That's what she does, right? But the tears of Nienna are so much more complicated. Um, they're so much deeper and more profound than simply the spontaneous grief of somebody who is bereaved, right? Um, it's a very non-foresighted, non-mystical, uh, you know, uh, active, you know, emotional act on Vana's part, and yet that is using, using, that is used as the. Uh, I think I was, I was I was debating between used and chosen there. Uh, it is used by Iluvatar as the instrument of his plan, right? As it seems to be something fairly like a miracle that brings about the birth of the sunfruit here, right? The, uh, the bearing of the sunfruit. Um, I don't think that this is just like the secret missing ingredient that makes the, you know, the magical spell that she was attempting to, 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 to weave about the tree to revive it before finally efficacious, right? This is just, it seems to be a miraculous act of grace. Um, and a furthering of the plan is, uh, gosh, maybe the sun and moon were in the plan all along, right? Um, and the trees had to die. Um, maybe it was always meant to be so. What was the, how was that? To, uh, maybe such things must be, right? Um, uh, but anyway, it is, um, it is Vana whose grief is used as the catalyst for this um, and whose grief, whose grief is shown pity, I would say, by Iluvatar in this moment. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I missed Sarah's comment about Manway's oratory. Uh, she says, well, at least Manway didn't rake everyone over the coals for their covetous, I guess. Yeah, it could, it could have been worse, Sarah. It could have been like, weep not, O children of the gods, uh, because honestly, like, why are you so covetous of these trees, right? If only you didn't value trees more than everything else. Then, yeah, you're right. Maybe he's learning too, right? We see his oratory improving. He's still... Doesn't get an A-plus here, but it is better than his previous track record. Okay. Well, you'll be glad to know I got more than 50% of the way through my slides tonight. So that's pretty exciting. Um, Dime had asked if I could share my PowerPoints for the class. Yes, um, I do post those. They just get posted in a couple places. I think they are posted, um, I believe that they're posted on the, the, the webpage, so you can download them from a link. Um, on the the class webpage, and they're also on the iTunes U page. So in either one of those places, they don't get posted to the podcast uh, feed, but um, but you can get those from the website and other places. So you can amuse yourself uh, by seeing how far I didn't get uh, in uh, my over-optimistic plan for the evening. But we're doing okay. We're sort of moving along. One of the things that I want to get to um, that we didn't get to tonight is I want to focus on the way in which myths are being made. The myth of the sun and moon is obviously a myth. You know, we talked before about myth as explanation of a phenomenon rather than, um, you know, myth as a particular kind of powerful story or as a particular mode of storytelling. That's how Tolkien is going to come to see myth later on in his career. Um, he seems to be making myth in a much more simple and traditional sense. We've sort of talked about that. And the sun and moon are, are sort of 
most obviously um, that kind of myth uh, here in these stories. I want to look at that and how that works because I think that that's we can see that that single observation, the fact that Tolkien is writing that kind of myth, or rather, to put the same thing in a different way, to begin to see from the Book of Lost Tales what it meant to Tolkien at this point to write myth, um, I think opens up a whole bunch of things to us and ha can help us to make sense of many things that might otherwise seem very strange about the Book of Lost Tales. So we'll talk about that um, uh, We'll talk about that uh, next time. Um, one last announcement that I will leave you with. Thank you, uh, Tim, for reminding me. Um, the official registration portal for MythMoot is open. If you have enjoyed our classes and you would like to uh, have lots more discussion and hear lots of stimulating talks and uh, hang out with awesome people and go to a really cool conference that really brings together uh, you know, scholarly and intellectual meet with uh, with with also a great deal of uh, of fun and frivolity with like-minded uh, fans and people. Mythmoot is the place for you. We're having our third annual Mythmoot this coming January, uh, and we have just opened our registration uh, for uh, uh, for for Mythmoot tonight. Dime is flying down from Alaska to Baltimore for Mythmoot, uh, so you have no excuse. I urge you go to the uh, if you want to get more information, go to MythGuard.org uh, on the current uh, on the uh, the quick links box over on the right hand side of our homepage. Uh, you will see Mythmoot uh, over there. Um, you can uh, you can you can just click right over there and learn more about it. Uh, and um, uh, and you can, and we would, we would, uh, we'd love to have you. We'd love to meet you, uh, Andrew. If you fly all the way from Australia, you might challenge Dime for the, uh, uh, the, the. She has pretty much owned the who traveled the furthest to get to Mythmoot uh, thing. She's been to both of our first two uh, Mythmoots and is coming again this year. Uh, but if somebody comes from uh, New Zealand or Australia, I don't know. You guys will have to measure. Uh, you might, you might finally have her beat. Um, but um, anyway, so. Um, uh, so thanks very much uh, for joining me. Do 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 check that out. We're open for uh, for registration. We'll be having uh, some announcements about MythMoot coming up. We will certainly um, be uh, uh, sending out the call for papers for this year's MythMoot very soon. So if you have an idea uh, for a paper that you'd like to read, we would love to hear your proposal. Um, uh, so we uh, so we we'd love for you to. Uh, um, to, to get that from you, and the call for papers officially will be going out uh, very soon. Um, and yes, Neil, the early registration price is less expensive. That's one thing that we've experimented with this year. We've opened the registration much earlier in the year than we did in the last two years, um, and we do have an early registration point. The registration price goes up um, in September, so um, um, so if you register uh, between now and the end of August, you uh, you you can register at a, at a at a cheaper rate. So anyway, I would love for you to join us at MythMoot, and I thank you for joining me at class tonight. And I look forward to carrying on through the next few slightly confusing chapters of the Book of Lost Tales. I'll tell you the thing. One of the things that I'm really going to be interested in focusing on is, uh, you know, we were talking about the hiding of Valinor, but I also want to be looking at sort of the shape of the story, um, and looking at the way in which. Um, sort of the frame is really asserting itself there and how he's putting these stories together and the way the texts proceed. We're going to be spending some time looking at that stuff uh, next week.
because we're totally going to get to that because I'm not going to fall further behind. As always, I remain confident. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good night.